Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Kendall, Senior Research Fellow in Arabic and Islamic Studies at Oxford University's Pembroke College. An expert on Yemen and on jihadist movements, she recently published a paper for the Engelsberg Ideas Forum titled Making Sense of the Yemen War. Liz, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's fantastic to be back. With so much happening in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world, the Yemen story gets really very little attention. Remind us why Yemen is important. Yes, that's a really good place to start. Why should we care about Yemen? After all, it's the poorest country in the Arab world. It doesn't have that much oil relative to others. And I guess unlike Middle East countries that are also in the throes of civil war, like Syria or Libya, it doesn't have easy access to the Mediterranean, so we're not seeing Yemeni refugees show up in Europe. There probably are some policymakers who wonder why we should even care. But I think the arguments are fairly obvious. Let's run through them anyway. The main one would be the moral one, the humanitarian one, but there's also very strong geostrategic arguments. That would be trade and security. So, you know, first of all, no one can be unaware by now that there is a massive humanitarian crisis in Yemen. About 80% of Yemenis need humanitarian assistance, and that's 24 million people. It's a really populous nation. It's about 30 million people overall. And even more important than that is it's incredibly young, about half of them under the age of 18. Add to that, there are 10 million starving, 3 million displaced, uh, actually over 80,000 children, I think the figure is, have starved to death. There have been over 2 million cases of cholera, the economy is collapsing, I could go on. But clearly there's a huge need for the international community to start paying attention and, and get on with helping to do something about it. And then the other argument, just look where it is on a map. Yemen is down there on the corner of where the Beb el Mandeb water strait goes up to the Red Sea. So it's all important access to the Red Sea for shipping. And uh, it, it has about 2,000 two kilometres of coastline. Uh, but on the other borders, it's bordering our allies, Saudi Arabia to the north, about 1,500 kilometres to the east, Oman, 300 kilometres. We do not want overspill into these two allies of ours, and that's already starting to happen, certainly on the Saudi border. You know, add to that the security importance. We've got conflicting interests playing out in Yemen. I guess most obviously that would be Iran versus uh, Saudi Arabia, the, the so-called Sunni-Shi'i war, the sectarian war that uh, a lot of commentators talk about. Of course, it's much more than that. And so, you know, just putting it all together, you've got millions of starving, angry people in a geostrategically important location, maybe throw in a history of militant jihad. And yeah, that's why Yemen matters. That's why we should worry. Now, in our last podcast with you, which was a very successful podcast, I think it's one of our top ranked podcasts. So I thank you for that. But on the 30, that was on the 31st of July, you spoke about how the tensions spiraled into war. But where do things stand now? Various agreements hailed as breakthroughs, the Stockholm Agreement in 2018, 
Riyadh agreement 2019, they don't seem to have achieved very much. Is peace any closer? Is peace any closer? Um, no, not really. I mean, a, a super quick recap of, of where we are. You know, of course, the uprising in 2011 was followed by a UN-led transition process that failed. And then the Houthis, that's a political and religious grouping, also part tribal from Yemen's north, grabbed power in 2014. And by 2015, the president had fled and the Saudi-led coalition entered the war. So five and a half years later, now, the war is still raging. And yes, we've had some agreements, but actually we now have about 40 front lines in the war. That's more than at any other time. So the two agreements that you've mentioned, Stockholm in 2018 and Riyadh in 2019, were actually between different sides. And that's a quite good indication of how the war could easily fragment. Uh, in very simple terms, there are three power blocks. There's the Houthis in Sana'a, and they're backed by Iran. There's the internationally recognised government, that's President Herdi, and that's located mainly in Riyadh. And then there's another group, the Southern Transitional Council. These are separatists in the south of Yemen, in Aden, and they're backed mainly by the UAE. So all of these warring sides, these are just the main warring sides, have come to some kind of agreement. Stockholm Agreement in 2018 hasn't worked out. It was really exciting at the time because it was the first time for a couple of years that uh, the two main warring sides, the Houthis and the government, had managed to meet at all. But uh, actually, I remember at the time I was commenting for a TV channel and uh, they called me up and said, have you had time to read it yet? Have you read the Stockholm Agreement? We need you to comment on it. And I replied, uh, yes, I have. It's, a, it's just a page. Uh, well, maybe a page and a half, very well spaced. And that was exactly the problem. There was, there was nothing to it. It was incredibly vague. And that meant that it was very open to interpretation, uh, obviously in incredibly different ways by the two opposing sides, and it hasn't really been implemented. So there were three bits to it. There was a ceasefire for the main port called Hudaida. And that did actually work for a while and staved off a catastrophe. Then there was an understanding for Taiz. That was just five lines long, and that's come to nothing. That's another front. And then there was the prisoner swap. And actually, you know, that has now started. We're two years on, of course. But I would almost see this as, as almost a depressing indicator. The fact that last month, 1,000 or just over 1,000 prisoners were exchanged between the Houthis and the Saudi-led coalition was, it was all over the news. It was a really big deal. Well, you know, that's, it's a tiny piece of progress. And in fact, the prisoner swap was supposed to be more like 15,000. Two years later, it, you know, it's, it's a fraction of that. And it's the only bit of the Stockholm Agreement that's going anywhere at the moment. And then just really quickly turning to the Riyadh Agreement in 2019, that was between Members of the coalition itself, that was between the Southern Transitional Council and the Herdy government, so between the legitimate, the so-called legitimate government and the separatists in the South, who, who were supposed to be on the same side, but they'd come to blows in the South. The separatists want their own state, 
they want it back. They, they did have one until uh, 1990. But um, that really hasn't gone anywhere either. There are still clashes in the South. And in fact, this week saw the fiercest fighting in the South for, for months between the governments and the secessionists. So it's just papering over some very fundamental differences, which the Riyadh Agreement really just kicked down the road. It didn't solve anything. Peace, I think, is still a very long way away. Uh, I don't know if you watched the UN Security Council briefing last week, but it was probably the most depressing yet. Uh, and yet it just feels like it's on constant replay. Well, we're nearly there, but we're not there. The envoy's been shuttling for months and still there's no agreement on the joint declaration that he's trying to broker between the warring sides. I think it might just end by mentioning the World Food Programme director, David Beasley's comment, where he just said, we are on a countdown to catastrophe. And I think that might be true. Hmm. On the 16th of November, uh, there were reports the Saudis would sign a UN proposal for a nationwide ceasefire if the Houthis agreed to a buffer zone along the Saudi border. You mentioned that's a very long border. What do you make of that? And uh, dare we hope that a ceasefire could be on the verge of happening? I don't know the extent of the veracity of the uh, rumours. I think they came out in Reuters of this uh, Saudi-Houthi potential agreement. But, but it would make sense. It would certainly make sense for the Saudis and the Houthis to be negotiating for such a buffer zone. And I think in return, the Saudis were going to ease somewhat the, the, the blockade. Um, I think for Saudi, it would make sense because, you know, the war hasn't gone well. They had three publicly stated war aims. They wanted to contain Iran to restore the Hedi government and prevent Yemen from fragmenting and also to safeguard their own southern border. None of those things have happened. It might well be looking for a way out of the war, hence these potential negotiations. I think there'd be three reasons for that. A, Iran's influence has increased, not decreased. So, you know, the sooner they make peace with the Houthis and pull them out of the orbit of Iran, the better. B, it's been really costly, this war. And that's at a time when the economy is now in trouble. Um, there's been a double hit, not only flagging oil prices, but also the pandemic. And then see, you know, let's not forget, it's possible that Saudi might start to lose US support under the imminent Biden administration. It's definitely more hostile towards Saudi. It's called it a pariah state. On the Houthi side as well, you've got to assume that Many Houthis have to be sick of war. They've been actually at war since 2004, on and off. Conditions are appalling in many of their areas. And they too might be worrying about the looming threats of, well, a foreign terrorist designation by uh, the Trump administration before it leaves office. That's been threatened. So they probably need to focus their attention on making a deal while they still can. But uh, I, I think it's worth just remembering it, it, it's not always about logic and sometimes we forget that it's actually about emotions it's about honor shame revenge and, and the Houthis having been at war now for on and off for about 16 years it's become a way of life 
And yes, sure, there will be moderates who want to make peace, but there'll also be hardliners. Some are sick of it, but others are invested in it. And and that's really not easy to change. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the the story that's swirling around that uh, President Trump may decide that the Houthis are a terrorist organization. I mean, if, if he does that, that surely is going to make an already fiendishly complicated, difficult situation just that much more difficult and complicated. I think that's right, Bill. I don't think it would be helpful right now to designate the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, although I can perfectly well see what the arguments for doing that would be. Um, For example, you know, the Houthis have a supremacist ideology. They say that only Saada, these are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, have the right to rule. Well, that is going to alienate many of the other stakeholders in Yemen straight off the bat. And then right now, the hardliners within the Houthis seem to be predominating. They've had a string of military successes. They're actually ambitious still to rule all of Yemen, although the moderates uh, not so. And their propaganda has become increasingly more aggressive. Um, I, I actually had a few messages from Yemenis recently when they were celebrating the Prophet's birthday in the Houthi territories. And they, they said, you know, this is, this is almost like the Houthi leader is claiming to be speaking with the voice of God. It's never looked so Shiite, uh, you know, and, and the growing sectarianism is worrying. Plus, the Houthis have a repressive police state. They target journalists. They target women. Um, And the anti-corruption claim that they rode to power on, partially, is is just blatantly fantastical. They've been enriching themselves. They use food as a weapon. So, yes, for sure, it's tempting to designate them as a terrorist organisation. The problem is, you know, they do rule territory in which about two-thirds of Yemen's population lives. And so... We have to be able to talk to them. Having them designated terrorists would massively impede the ability to hold consultations, peace talks, and also probably put put an end to humanitarian organisations being able to get aid and food in. And actually, in those Houthi territories is where it's most needed. So on balance, I'd say it's a bad idea. Now, you mentioned that this is a very young population, and that's really, in, in all of the tragedies of this war, that, that may be the, the greatest and longest lasting, is that the, really what you call a lost generation of youth. Talk about that a little bit and what it means for the people and, and the country. Yes, it's so important not to forget the generation of youth, because ultimately, this is the future of Yemen. So while we're all stuck in what's happening right now and there are so many fires to put out right now yeah we really should be thinking ahead and I mean imagine if you're a if you're a 15 year old kid you've only known war since you were nine years old that's your most formative time you've had little or no schooling what are you going to be able to do your future is going to be most suited to joining a militia uh, perhaps smuggling getting in on organised crime and the war economy. (laughs) There are two million kids, over two million kids, out of school. And then you have to think that the schools that are left 
well, you know, there's a lot of rote learning. The edu- education curriculum is weak. Teachers haven't been paid for months. And, and well, you know, add to that, there have been, according to a humanitarian organisation, Muatana, um, since the war began until the end of last year, there have been, they counted 380 attacks on schools. So things are really bad. Think about it from our point of view. You know, during COVID-19 in the UK, our schools closed for a couple of months and you know, everyone's crazy worried about the impact on their children and massively focused on schools having to open. So in terms of Yemen, you have to ask, who's going to rebuild the country? You've touched upon this as well. There are so many factions in this war. They're all to varying degrees fueling a war economy. It's a sad reality, isn't it, that the war is good business in Yemen and indeed uh, good for countries like ours and, and the United States. Yes, it is. Uh, it's not very good business for ordinary Yemenis. Uh, you know, basic foods are more expensive than they've ever been and millions are starving. Uh, actually, just in 2020, the real, the Yemeni real has lost about 25% of its value. And that's on top of deflation. So uh, it's it's absolutely terrible for ordinary Yemenis. But others are getting rich. Leaders are getting rich. There's a rampant smuggling economy. And yeah, we see lots of images of starving babies and skeletal women. But look at the images of the leaders and the ministers. It doesn't look like they're going hungry. And, you know, war is good business for us, too, as you point out. Our sale of weapons, which is massive business, uh, particularly for the US and the UK, France, Sweden, it's, it's really big business. But think about the data that's come out of the Yemen Data Project. It, you know, roughly just under a third of airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition have hit non-military targets. That's markets, hospitals, funerals, school buses, or a school bus, uh, schools, infrastructure, uh, ability to irrigate one's fields, all sorts of really useful civilian infrastructure has been destroyed. And it it might be that Houthis were hiding weapons in those places, but that that still makes it a war crime to, to bomb them. So... Actually, there's also a further third of airstrikes that we're not sure what they've hit. They might have hit military targets, but they might have hit civilian targets. And then a third have been right on target on military targets. But I'm not sure that hit rate is enough to justify selling weapons. You know, they might well hit civilians if, 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 if such a thing as selling weapons can ever be justified. Um, now, in the UK, we've been looking at this in the high court and for a a while licenses you know new licenses had been suspended but this year this summer our government finished an investigation uh, into itself and uh, concluded that there was no pattern of violations and that the arms sales could continue as usual and that's quite controversial because the United Nations panel of experts has actually found violations in every single one of its last five reports. Violations not just by the Houthis, but by the Saudi-led coalition. So I would have thought that constitutes a pattern. And similarly, in the US, Congress did actually vote to end 
US military support to Saudi, and weapon sales are very controversial there too, but Trump vetoed it in 2019. And perhaps I'll just end by saying, with the looming G20 summit, I saw that Oxfam brought out a very interesting uh, report a couple of days ago, where they said that, or they pointed out, that G20 members have since the war started, the international war started in 2015, they've sold $17 billion worth of arms to Saudi. And that equates to about three times the amount given in aid. So on the one hand, we give, on the other hand, we take away. And you've touched on this as well, that so much of Yemen's infrastructure has been damaged or destroyed. Health issues are enormous. There's food insecurity. There's actual starvation the epidemics, the cholera epidemic, and of course, COVID-19, the health system and hospitals utterly overwhelmed. How long do you think uh, before rebuilding can begin and and what sort of efforts from the international community are required? Presumably, they're enormous efforts. But in the meantime, we've got this war that keeps on and on. Yes, the problem here is that one can't really wait until the war ends in order to rebuild because people... People need to get on with their lives. They need to have a future. They, they need to have aspirations that can be fulfilled. Because if, if that doesn't happen, then no one has any reason to end the war. It just becomes perpetuated. You know, and there are some initiatives that are taking place at a grassroots level. And, and they're really important. I, I would probably single out projects for women's empowerment And there are small projects going on all over Yemen. In fact, even the UN is talking to groups of women on a regular basis to try to get them more involved in the peace process. And there are smaller projects to help women have more of a say in in the social and political structures around them. Uh, I've actually had a a little hand in a project like that in the far east of Yemen with a charity that I, I chair. We tried to start a women's newspaper and give women a voice that they could contribute to the community. Uh, but it was quite interesting, actually, when, when we started out uh, and I had a meeting with these women um, in the coastal capital of Al-Ghaida. One of the first things they said to me is, Doctora, we don't want to be like you, which, which slightly took me aback. But uh, what they meant was, you know, don't make us into Westerners who have career plans and ambitions like straight off the bat and writing about political things and terrorism. What they really meant was, you know, we've got our own sets of priorities and our own concerns. And, you know, I said, absolutely, that's absolutely what's going to happen. You're going to dictate what you want to do and hopefully contribute that voice to society. So what really took me aback was how opinionated they were um, in a good way and how confident and how much they wanted to contribute. So I I do think there's some hope there, even though that's a tiny microcosmic example. But what I would say is that COVID has, the the whole pandemic has focused uh, Western minds on doing something in Yemen, perhaps a a bit more than it had before, because of course with infrastructure bombed out, with the population weakened, it it could be that COVID runs havoc, havoc with with Yemen. And and it's given everyone something to grab hold of. You know, aid is it's almost like a, a a prop when you can't be politically bold enough to make really 
strong pressure drives to solve the conflict, then you talk about aid. Um, sometimes it feels like this is what our government does. It's saying, isn't the conflict in Yemen terrible? But look, we're giving all this aid. And it becomes like a, a sticking plaster, a band-aid on a, on a gushing wound. Uh, I'll just leave you with a, a little anecdote on that. It's just sprung to mind, which is when the whole pandemic broke and so many, uh, so many people came out and made statements about poor old Yemen and how, how dreadful it was going to be. They said, you know, these, these messages were saying things along the lines of, look, we've suffered airstrikes, starvation, water shortage, cyclones, floods, cholera, diphtheria. Uh, polio, foreign occupation, displacement, terrorist attacks. And, and suddenly you're all worried because we're not wearing masks and we're not keeping two metres apart. It just really makes you think, doesn't it? Yeah, it does indeed. And and, and you're so right about the, the women in Yemen that I've met are very determined, opinionated, as you say. And, and I think very important to be part of the process that moves towards peace. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, Joe Biden, president-elect. He's on record as saying he will use the threat of halting arms sales to the Saudis to force an end to the war. What do you think? Is that going to make a difference? Well, I think the first question is, what will Biden actually do regarding Yemen and Saudi as opposed to what has Biden actually said? Uh, you know, Let's give him the benefit of, of the doubt. And Biden did actually say it, in October, we, you know, we will end US support for Saudi's war in Yemen. And I think his words were something like, make sure America does not check its values at the door to sell arms or buy oil. Saudi, though, has dismissed this as campaign rhetoric. And I noticed it was slow to congratulate Biden on his win. So perhaps that does suggest it knows that a reboot is in the offing. But the arguments still remain for Biden to keep Saudi close, uh, even if perhaps less importance is attached to them. If Saudi is uh, it's an ally against Iran, it's a big spender on arms, so that would hurt. Uh, it's a partner on intelligence. That said, I do believe that a Democrat administration cannot overlook the repression. You know, women activists have been locked up by Saudi. Um, critics have been harassed or, or bumped off. And the weapons that are sold to Saudi have killed civilians in Yemen. There's no getting away from that. So I think he might end arms sales. He might. Would that then end the war? No. It wouldn't end the war any more than ending Iranian support for the Houthis would, would stop the Houthis from fighting. But it sure would send a strong message. And, you know, if nothing else, it shows the world is looking at your targeting and we don't condone it. And this is the kind of pressure we're now going to put on you to hopefully help incentivize the compromises that will need to be made in order for first a ceasefire and then hopefully eventually peace to be rolled out in Yemen. Yes, and perhaps it'll cause a, a bit of a reset uh, here with our government in terms of uh, sales of, of weapons to the Saudis. Uh, and finally, I want to ask you, because the last time we had you on the podcast, you talked about the battle between Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS. How is that going? And, and to what ends will these terror groups go, do you think, to prevent 
any peace deal happening. Well, Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been hugely degraded, uh, particularly of late. Actually, since we last spoke, they suffered an extensive campaign against them in August, and we're not hearing very much from them since then. So they're down, but they're not out, let's put it like that. And keeping them down is, is going to be the challenge. Uh, I think it's always worth remembering that they profit from war, they profit from strife, they profit from failed or failing states. And so, I mean, just to take it back, if the war were to flare up across Yemen and fragment more than it is, I, I think they could squeeze into that gap again. I think it is really interesting that Al-Qaeda in particular was able to get on such a roll with the war early on. Its narrative was perfectly slotted into the war narrative. It fitted the uh, political battle to its religious one. It was, instead of a territorial dispute, it became a dispute between northern infidels and southern Sunni believers, you know, Shiites versus Sunnis. Economically, it scored a lot of benefit from the Saudi blockade because it was able to organise along the coastline that it had started to control in 2015 and 2016. Um, massive imports of desired food and oil products, which enriched it. And, uh, and it slipped into the vacuum left by government. All right, that heyday is over, but it took an extraordinary amount of effort to uproot Al-Qaeda. And so to keep them uprooted... And to keep ISIS at bay, we're going to have to do a much better job of addressing the underlying concerns of people that have enabled these groups to be tolerated, shall we say. You know, we have to create opportunities. We have to encourage aspirations um, and actually also ensure that those aspirations have a chance of being fulfilled, some kind of meritocracy. Because if the state and we, the international community, do leave a vacuum and don't start helping to rebuild Yemen and listening to some of the voices of, of genuine people around Yemen, then these extremist groups will slip straight back in. And, uh, and then the fight starts all over again. Yes, you underline the importance of getting a ceasefire and beginning that process towards peace. Liz, thank you so much. You are extremely welcome. Thank you again for thinking about Yemen. Please get all your listeners keep thinking about Yemen because it's, it's not going away anytime soon. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Elizabeth Kendall, Senior Research Fellow in Arabic and Islamic Studies at Oxford University's Pembroke College. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.